Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, folks. Welcome to the Burn Bag. This Monday's episode is going to be great. Ryan, how are you doing? I think I woke you up quite a bit early. Yeah, you know, Andre, uh, I, I had quite a late night last night, uh, maybe one too many uh, Mexican mules. And so, but, you know, here we are. We're recording this. The Moscow? No, Mexican with tequila. It's better. I, 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 I recommend it to everyone. Um, but uh, no, I, you know, I'm glad we're doing these new intros to the podcast episodes where you and I just got to get to talk about what's going on. And so um, Andrew McCabe's episode honestly is probably my favorite of you know the second year of the podcast, although it is I guess well, who is Andrew McCabe? First of all, I think your audience deserves to know that Andrew McCabe is the former FBI deputy director, former FBI acting director. You might have heard his name in the news quite a bit because he was very much involved in the 2019 impeachment, the first impeachment of President Donald Trump. Uh, Andrew sort of became was deputy director to James Comey finds out he's about to be named acting director of the FBI when Trump fired James Comey by tweet. Uh, Quite a guy, quite an interesting guy. He was very much attacked by Donald Trump throughout the whole Russia investigation process and the aftermath, because as acting FBI director, he was the guy who launched that Russia investigation after seeing all the evidence and so on. Yeah, I mean, he he talked about how difficult that decision was. It's never easy to investigate a sitting president or his, you know, his associates. And so if you look back on Andrew McCabe's, his career, his history, I mean, he was went to law school and then decided to join the FBI, uh, where he was, you know, on the SWAT team, he investigated organized crime of the Russian mob. And then he spent a lot of time in the post 9-11 era uh, working on in, in the national security section and leading a terrorism task force. Yeah. And so truly just a, a consummate professional. Very much a guy who has a big uh, expertise on counterterrorism. And uh, one thing that we do throughout the interviews, we actually want to dig into the similarities between radicalization of international terrorists, for example, Islamic militants, Al-Qaeda, and so on and how radicalization, how those same principles of radicalization can be applied with some of the domestic terror threats we're seeing right now uh, from the extreme right wing. So it'll be an interesting episode. Uh, Folks, I hope you listen to it. And uh, yeah, Ryan, other than that, how are you doing? You know, Andre, I'm I'm at the you know the back end of my trip in Colorado, so I'm trying to you know enjoy it as much as I can. Going to go for a nice bike ride this morning, and then you know I'm off. That's nice. the summer is quickly coming to an end. Yeah, I'm flying out to Sri Lanka with my family uh, later today. Uh, we're leaving in 37 minutes via shuttle from San Diego to Los Angeles International Airport. I'm looking forward to a nice, comfy 16 and a half hour plane ride from LA to Doha and Qatar via Qatar Airlines, a two-hour layover, and then a five-hour trip to Sri Lanka, a PCR test, and an entire day of quarantining in a hotel in the capital of Sri Lanka. And then I can see my family. So I'll basically got a commission for like two days. I know. It'll be the longest we've gone without talking, Andre. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. All right. We we talk every day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, you know, on the bright side, you know, Qatar Airlines is quite nice. I'm sure you'll have some, some... Some good seats and some good it food. Is. And then once you get to Sri Lanka, you get to enjoy family in the beautiful country. Though, you know, I, I don't know if I travel internationally in the in the midst of COVID, particularly with the Delta variant, but you're braver than I. Yeah, in Colorado. <laughs> you might as well be traveling internationally. Right. But yeah, I mean, I'm, the whole COVID thing sort of like uh, concerning. 
uh, they're reopening the country in Sri Lanka as this, these COVID cases go up, as this Delta variant spreads, but they're vaccinating a lot of people. The president of Sri Lanka said you'll need a vaccine card to access public spaces and a lot of other things you'd normally enjoy. So he's about to make life very, very hard from a government perspective on the unvaccinated. So it'll be interesting to see. I'll be fairly very careful be in a bubble of family but yeah it's going to be hot it's going to be humid it's going to be sweltering to be frank but ryan uh let's leave it there our episode with andrew mccabe is great i've called it in behind the scenes uh, my favorite interview the perfect interview and so on but uh i'll throw it to them i'll throw it to andrew Andrew, we're so happy and honored that you're joining us here today. Thank you so much. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So I appreciate the invitation. Definitely. So Andrew, I'm just going to start off with, I guess, the end of your career, and then we'll sort of go back. But uh, tell us a bit more about this Russia investigation. What was your reaction when you were named acting director of the FBI right after President Trump had fired James Comey. Sure. I'm happy to, happy to go over that. I probably would be better for me to back up just a little bit to kind of uh, walk your listeners into the investigation a bit. Um, so as you, I'm sure, will remember, um, the FBI was investigating and looking into some very concerning Russian cyber activity as early as the fall of 2014 and then all the way through 2015. During that period of time, I was in our Washington field office uh, as the uh, person in charge of of the office we refer to as WFO, Washington Field. Um, So I came back to headquarters um, at the end of 2015 and started serving as deputy in the beginning of 2016. Um, And at that point, we were pretty deep into a little investigation you might have heard of before that focused on Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. So that had started a while before I came back to headquarters and and the team was pretty far into that uh, then. So as we were going through the beginning of 2016, we saw some really uh, very concerning activity from what we believed were Russian intelligence officers or people working at the behest of Russian intelligence, um, committing some really uh, very um, aggressive cyber uh, penetrations of government entities and private think tanks and private universities and things like that. Um, so that continued uh, through the beginning of 2016. Uh, eventually, we started looking at we th- what we thought were uh, targeting efforts by the Russians of the Democratic National uh, Committee and also some uh, probing of the Republican National Committee, although there was no indication that they had been as successful there. So we had a, a series of kind of stumbling uh, interactions with the DNC, giving them a kind of heads up as to, to check their systems for the, the things that were concerning us. Um, for whatever reason, those, those checks didn't really happen. The follow-up wasn't, wasn't perfect. Um, and eventually we did see that they got into the systems and were stealing a large um, volume of material. Uh, so that was so. These were I say this just to give you some background as to why we were so concerned about what the Russians were doing in cyberspace at that time. But we didn't really know um, kind of where this probing was going to go. 
Um, of course, we found out ultimately when the Russians weaponized that information on the eve of the Democratic National Convention in uh, the nominating convention uh, in July of 2016. Uh, it's kind of the first time we'd ever seen you know, stolen cyber information, emails, that sort of thing, weaponized in such a direct way that it, that appeared uh, to be intended to influence the outcome of a political uh, election. Unbeknownst to us, several months before that, in May, an individual who was affiliated with the Trump campaign um, had a now infamous conversation with a friendly foreign diplomat in which he basically said that the Russians had offered to assist the Trump campaign uh, and by providing them with thousands of, uh, uh, by providing them with dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. I'm not quoting him exactly here, but that was the substance of what he said. We didn't know that in May. In fact, we only found out about it after the weapon, you know, the information was weaponized before the convention. So at that point, this friendly foreign diplomat was so concerned about what they had heard prior to the release of the information and that this might have been sort of a, uh, you know, a uh, very focused Russian operation. Um, they brought it to our attention. Um, and it was with that revelation that we opened the case now widely known as Crossfire Hurricane. The purpose of the case was to investigate whether or not anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign had actually worked with the Russian government. So that's kind of uh, very briefly what the, the series of facts that got us into the investigation. Contrary to what you've heard many times, it had opening, you know, opening the case at the end of July in 2016 had nothing to do with um, the uh, files and the information provided to us later by uh, Christopher Steele. We didn't have that information when we opened the Russia case, uh, Crossfire Hurricane. Um, but that's really kind of what what got us started. And I think you know most of our listeners probably are, are familiar with the story, and it, it really is an incredible one. But Andrew, I want to ask you about the morale at FBI at that time because I mean it's exceedingly rare for FBI directors to be fired. I mean, they're appointed to 10-year terms with the advice and consent of Congress. And so when you have the removal of an FBI director and then James Comey in this particular instance, what was the reaction at FBI up and down the chain? Well, you know, from the point that we we announced our uh, conclusion of the Clinton email case, that was on July 5th, 2016, um, that was a decision that really riled up people in a in a in a very emotional way, and that would I would say it's a good description of how people inside the FBI reacted. We had a really very vocal reaction from some employees. Others, I think, started you know talking to their friends outside the organization and and talking to the media, and so there was this. There were, you know, there was um, a lot of people disagreed with our decision. I would say people who really had no access to the case and didn't really understand what we had done and what we learned. But nevertheless, um, it was a, a bit of a tumultuous time inside the FBI after July of 2016. So that all leads into, you know, the end of the year. We have the election. Um, our investigation of the Trump campaign is really, uh, really moving forward now against primarily four targets. Um, and we are having a series of, of, of discussions at the executive level to decide, should, are we at the point where we actually have to open a case on the president himself? And there's a, there's a, you know, pros and cons of that. It's going back and forth. 
Um, during this period, also Director Comey is having has had has several really concerning interactions with the president, um, and ones in which he is asking for a pledge of loyalty, and then ultimately uh, an interaction in the Oval Office where he asks Director Comey to stop investigating uh, his friend, who he is in the process of firing, Mike Flynn. Um, so all this really had us on edge. And then, of course, Jim gets fired on May 9th, uh, 2017. And I can tell you that in the days after the immediate aftermath of the firing, the reaction was really, really remarkable, even from folks who may have been angry about the Hillary, the conclusion of the Hillary Clinton case or people who, you know, the, pol- the, the political divide that I think we've experienced in this country was starting to bleed its way into the FBI. So there were Differences of opinion on those things, but by and large, Jim Comey was widely, widely liked and appreciated by the vast majority of people in the FBI, um, and people were absolutely shocked. It was not just that they lost a leader who they appreciated, um, but also we had always seen ourselves at a, as a, a little bit above it all, right above the scrum of politics and constantly changing political, you know, leadership at the head of the organization. The FBI only has one political appointee, and that is the director, and he serves uh, at the at the, you know, he serves at the president's discretion, but he serves a ten-year term. Um, so it doesn't mean he can't be fired, but history has shown that FBI directors typically only leave uh, when they're ready to retire. Um, or at the end of their term. So I think it was shocking and really deeply disturbing to all of us. It was kind of a shot across the bow that I think many people accurately interpreted as a message that um, you know we would be brought to heel in the same way the rest of the government would. Um, and that our treasured kind of independence um, and neutrality might be in jeopardy. So it's been about, well, almost two years since President Trump's first impeachment. In that time, we've had a second impeachment, we've had an election, we have a new president. And oftentimes, uh, with these big events, the news cycle is sort of short on these major events. I mean, sometimes, (laughs) honestly, you will almost forget that all of this happened. But uh, there's so much noise around the Russia investigation, especially when it was going on. There was so much noise about uh, the first impeachment, whether it was opinionated or analytical and so on. And sometimes it gets easy to be lost in all of this noise. But I just wanted to ask you, what are the biggest myths and realities around the Russia investigation? You could clarify for our listeners. You sort of covered a bit about that with the Steele dossier, but uh, what are the other myths that people don't get right about this? Sure. So I would say the first thing that comes to mind in terms of the absolute biggest myth is that the investigation itself was a hoax. Um, It certainly was not a hoax. It was validly by anyone's measure. So that's not just, you know, don't just listen to me. I'm the person responsible for opening it. But um, by the Senate Intelligence Committee that came in and did a five-volume study, by the uh, the Inspector General, by er- every outside entity that's looked at this has agreed that the investigation was validly predicated at its inception. It had to be done. Um, we open cases when we have information that a national security threat might exist or that a violation of federal criminal law might have happened. In this case, we had information that supported both of those theories. And so we opened a full investigation uh, according to our authorities. 
Um, so not a hoax. Um, and then I think if you look at the results of the investigation, if you look at the report itself, put aside all the maybe the misrepresentation of the report by Attorney General Barr at the time and all the politics and personalities around, you know, uh, former Director Mueller and everybody else, just read the text of the report. Clearly not a hoax. What the report shows you very simply is in volume one, the part that focuses on the activities of the Russians here, that the Russians were engaged in a vast and pervasive effort to undermine our democracy, to influence the American political process. Um, they also found that the Trump campaign was accept, wanted that wanted that assistance, was willing to accept that assistance. They simply were not able to prove that kind of that final keystone in the bridge, right? The the one piece of evidence that would connect what the Russians wanted and were doing with what the campaign wanted and ultimately benefited from. It's there's, So there's no proof of agreement upon which you could charge a conspiracy. But nevertheless, there's an unbelievable laydown of facts that point toward very, very concerning activity by our most serious adversary. So that's one. The second conclusion is that uh, President Trump, um, in his conduct, in his words, in his statements, in the ways that he directed those around him to include his White House counsel, um, committed acts that if committed by any other American, would have constituted an obstruction of justice. The only reason he wasn't uh, indicted is because of the Department of Justice policy, uh, legal interpretation, that says that you cannot indict a sitting president. And with that policy, Director Mueller, in an overabundance of caution, if you ask me, uh, refused to say whether or not the facts supported an indictment, even though he wasn't asking for one. But if you actually read the report, he goes through the key elements of the offense of obstruction of justice. And he analyzes, I think, eight or I think it's 10 different instances in which obstruction of justice may have occurred. And in eight of those 10, he finds that all of the elements of the offense have been satisfied. So there are facts to show that the president engaged in the obstruction of justice, not once, but eight different ways. Um, so not a hoax, a substantive investigation, unbelievably um, deep uh, and wide in its, um, in its scope, conducted by professionals in a professional and unbiased way. Um, and, it, and it includes some very, very damaging conclusions. So Andrew, as Andre mentioned at the top, your book is entitled The Threat. And so, of course, we know that you know the Russians pose a threat to national security. Some members of Trump's campaign pose a threat to national security. Um, and of course, you mentioned that uh, President Trump very well could have been charged with obstruction of justice. But would you elevate his actions to actually being a threat to national security? And if so, how would you characterize or classify that threat? Sure. So I think it's important to separate out how I thought about it at the time and how I think about it now. So at the time, I definitely believed that there was information that indicated that he could very possibly be a threat to national security. He There was information that indicated his campaign, which he's in control of as the subject of that campaign, may have been cooperating with the Russian government, may have been receiving the assistance of Russians in the Russian government. Um, I think the uh, results of the uh, of the Mueller report of the special counsel's investigation, um, you know, bared that 
that concern out in a very real and factual way. Now, since then, I think we've seen in a number of different ways that I, I believe it's my opinion that he was clearly a, a threat to national security. Um, you know, we have, he has the distinction of being the only president to have been impeached twice, not once, but twice. Uh, the first time involving matters that are directly counter to American foreign policy interests and American national security interests by uh, undermining the security of one of our allies, the government of Ukraine, by essentially extorting that government uh, for help in his own political efforts. So he's proven himself to be someone who will sublimate the interests of the United States and sublimate the interests of U.S. national security for his own political, personal political benefit. Um, and if that doesn't constitute a threat to the United States from the highest office in the country, I don't know what does. So, I mean, this investigation was so unique. I mean, first of all, I mean, what does it even take to launch an investigation into the president of the United States, not just some random you know, person on the street? And I mean, another part of this investigation is that there are so many facets of counterintelligence but also criminal investigations. And uh, could you sort of take us through that, like how the FBI dealt with these sort of dual aspects of this investigation? Because you had the foreign influence operation, right, with the Russians and trying to get into that campaign, but then also the Americans who might be criminally involved in this. Uh, could you sort of dig into that a bit deeper and sort of clarify how the FBI, FBI navigated that? Sure. So I think it's important to understand that counterintelligence information, or I'm sorry, counterintelligence investigations always have the possibility of ending up with a criminal charge, right? So the, 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 I hate the word vast majority, everybody who says that, but the, the strong majority of, of FBI counterintelligence cases don't result in a criminal charge, um, but they, they always could. So this possibility, this kind of, um, dual aspect of national security investigation and criminal investigation are, are really always present in any counterintelligence investigation, clearly present in this one for the reasons I made, talked about earlier. Um, the, the, I, what I can't possibly uh, emphasize too much is the, the utter unprecedented nature of this investigation. So investigating the president of the United States, it just, um, it was not something that any of us were prepared for. Um, it's certainly not something that I ever considered at any other time in my 21 year career. I'm sure, uh, I don't want to speak for Jim Comey, but I would guess that he would probably say the same thing. Um, we knew that we were walking onto very, very dangerous ground for the organization um, and, and for ourselves personally, because the 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 volatility of the politics around this was always kind of hovering out there. Uh, we very much wanted to be able to do this in the most um, objective, nonpartisan, independent way. That's the way we think about the work that we do. FBI people, contrary to what you've heard, do not bring their politics uh, to the work that they do. So. Um, but that's, you know, I, I say that just to kind of set up, uh, the conclusion, which is that's why when Jim was fired on May 9th, I asked the team to go back and take a look at the crossfire 
investigation and tell me whether or not they recommended that we open any additional cases or close any current cases. And they came back and recommended that we open the case against Trump and also a case against Jeffrey Sessions, who was then attorney general. So with those cases, it became clear to me that we could no longer continue investigate the investigation uh, as just a normal FBI investigation. It was time to hand this over to someone who was specifically designated for it, a special counsel who would have a greater degree of independence and essentially take this political football, if you, if you will, away from out of the hands of the FBI. Um, and so I had several conversations with the deputy attorney general, um, Rod Rosenstein at that time. And over the course of about a week or so in which I tried to convince him to do that. And, and of course he, he did decide to do that and he pulled in director Mueller. So it's, um, so in some ways the case was the kind of ultimate counterintelligence case, right? It was dealing with a national, a potential national security threat of the absolute highest order and also the possibility of under uh, uncovering some criminal activity, um, but also so totally unprecedented and um, that, that we really had to go to kind of a different level to pursue it, um, which I, th- I always supported as being the right way to look at it. Yeah, uh, undoubtedly. And so um, this kind of time period in, in your career and for the country was very significant, but uh, of course you had a, a wide ranging career at FBI. And so I want to go back in time and talk about, you know, your motivations for joining the FBI, because uh, you, like myself, you know, I'm, I'm a law student currently, you were a law student, and you decided after a few years of private practice to join the FBI. I did, I did. I, you know, Ryan, I actually came came across the idea while I was in law school. Um, I went into law school really intending to get into criminal law. It was kind of the thing that motivated me. Um, was never really that interested in, in civil law. Uh, I tried. Oh my God, did I try? I sent a thousand letters out to prosecutors' offices, like everywhere I could get. No, no one was, <laughs> was interested. Um, and then in the summer between my second and third year, I tried to get into the DOJ's uh, honors intern program. I was rejected from that as well. And uh, so then I became a. I, I took a volunteer internship position at DOJ. Came to DC for the summer, and. It just was such a fortuitous turn of events. I spent the summer in the criminal fraud section investigating a big white collar uh, case, actually a a campaign finance case, ironically enough. And while doing that, I read these reports the FBI agents write after an interview. They're called uh, FD-302s. And they bitched in a very kind of... um, you know, bland way, very factual, not not any opinions or editorialization, but they document what the uh, witness or the victim or uh, the record keeper, whoever it is that they're interviewing, told them. And I just became fascinated with those conversations that you could be, you know, tasked with getting to the bottom of some great mystery or controversy uh, or conflict, and that you would have the ability to just find people who might be able to shed light on those events and just sit down with them and convince them to tell you anything, you know, the most horrifying details of a crime or, or things that would, you know, might implicate them personally. And time and time again, they would just tell, you know, tell their stories to the FBI. So I came back my third year, really interested in joining the Bureau. They were under a hiring freeze. So when I got out of law school, I went to work in for a private firm for about three years uh, until the bureau started taking applications, ultimately took mine. Took about two years to get through the process, 
Um, and then I went in 96, summer of 96 down to Quantico and started the, the great adventure. So your career has certainly been wide ranging. Uh, certainly you started off in those few years preceding the September 11th attacks, and you've seen the FBI change, I think, considerably in terms of what threat matrices it views. Uh, and when we often talk about September 11th, and I'm asking you this because, you know, you, you've seen this entire time span and you also served as the assistant director for the counterterrorism division. Many analysts often refer to 9-11 or the result of 9-11 as being a failure of imagination in terms of how those attacks were executed. And we certainly learned some, quote unquote, lessons from September 11th. But in many other ways, January 6th, with this domestic terror threat, the Proud Boys and other sort of right-wing extremists, that storming the Capitol could have also been a failure of imagination. So, I mean, my question to you is, were there lessons of September 11th that we seemingly missed for January 6th? That's a great question. Um, and I, I love the way you phrased it. Um, because, uh, first, because it spotlights the learning that took place, not just in the FBI, but across the national security community after September 11th. And, you know, there's that, we could have a several hour discussion on that. Um, even just looking at the FBI's evolution from a kind of reactive, really criminally focused organization to becoming a, an intelligence driven uh, national security entity, a full partner in the national security community and that post 9-11 Evolution, which is something that I'm very proud to have been able to watch and and be a part of, um, but I think one of the biggest lessons that we took away, well, some of the biggest lessons were those that we that were really highlighted by the 9/11 Commission, um, and so I think they did uh, in in a very clear and logical and really incredibly well written way exposed that failure of imagination leading up to September 11th. Um, but it also showed us like how valuable it is to have that kind of commentary after what is undoubtedly, no matter, you might have different opinions as to how it was a failure or why it was a failure, but undoubtedly a failure, right? So September 11th, the FBI's mission is number one priority is to prevent an act of terrorism in the United States. So 9-11 is a failure on that uh, Mark, as is January 6th. January 6th is a failure by the FBI, period, full stop. Not the FBI alone. There are others involved there. But simply by by looking at what happened, that should not happen um, in this country, which is, I, I believe, why it's, it is so important for us to have a fulsome, full scope, um, independent inquiry into all the things that led us to January 6th. Um, so that's that's one lesson from September 11th that I think we're not following right now, which will really impede our ability to become better later. And that's what all this is about. These investigations are about these after the fact, you know, uh, hot washes or whatever you want to call them of, of our performance are not about politics or seeking advantage or the next election. It's about doing this work better. There's no question we do terrorism, international terrorism, better post 9-11 than we did before it. And I would love to be confident that that will be the case here with respect to domestic terrorism and January 6th, but I'm not quite convinced yet. Um, I do, from what little I know from the open source material I've, I've read and listened to and 
Um, you know, I try to read everything I can on these things. I think there's all kinds of reasons to be concerned about how the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security and the Capitol Police, how they thought about the intelligence they had prior to January 6th, what they thought, the assumptions that you make around intelligence collection are absolutely vital to whether or not that intelligence is going to um, have a positive impact on your decision-making, right? Intelligence is just information for decision-makers. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, decision makers don't make decisions based on raw intelligence it has to be interpreted and then presented to them. And the assumptions that you make around that analytical process can really change the way the information is received or acted upon. And I think it's worthy to go back and look at everything the FBI knew, everything DHS knew in the lead up to January 6th. And if they didn't know anything, then ask questions like, where was their intelligence collection? I mean, the, you know, the FBI has an enormous source base that reports on domestic terrorism matters. You know, what were those sources saying and what did we think about what they were saying? And did we draw some conclusions that were not, you know, not as accurate as they could have been? Did we have some biases built into some of the d conclusions that we drew? Uh, these are all really healthy, good questions to ask. Uh, and I, I hope that they are asked and answered clearly. Yeah, I mean, biases are certainly important, but also prioritizations because the intelligence community um, may prioritize certain counterterrorism efforts more than others. And so if we look back to your tenure as assistant director for counterterrorism, was there a particular focus um, you know, on Islamic extremism and Islamic uh, terrorism? And, and with that, was there any sort of semblance of this far-right extremism threat that we've seen you know, in the past few years? Absolutely. There was definitely um, an emphasis on what we in the Bureau call IT, international terrorism. And, and to be clear, that includes not just individuals and groups that are located overseas, but also people in this country who are motivated by or aspire to be members of those groups. So even if you're you know, you're in Oklahoma City, but you're a follower of uh, of the Islamic State, and you stage an attack because you think they've told you to. That to us is an international terrorism matter. Um, there's no question. I mean, the the threat, the volume of threats we faced from international terrorism outstripped the volume and severity of threats we faced from domestic terrorism at that time. That was our conclusion. Um, were we wrong about that? It's entirely possible, and that's certainly something worth looking into. Um, I would argue that we probably weren't wrong then, but that the domestic terrorism threat has shifted um, significantly over the past I would say at least 10 years, right? So beginning with the with President Obama's first term, we saw a rise in right-leaning, um, you know, racist, white supremacist uh, threats. Um, and so I think that, you know, to be inclusive, I think you have to look back at least that far to, to assess our current uh, state of affairs. Right now, it's clearly off the map. You know, it's, it's off the charts in terms of um, the frequency and the severity of the threats that we face from right-leaning groups, white supremacist groups, militia groups, um, you know, uh, misogynist groups, things like that. And that's just by, you know, taking Director Ray's word for it and other, other FBI officials recently. Um, we're definitely at a time where we need to rethink uh, everything about how we approach the, the domestic terrorist threat. Um, 
what we think of how we interpret our intelligence, how we staff it, how we resource those things within the Bureau, but also what sort of tools we have, what sort of legal authority we have to pursue investigations and prosecutions. Um, I think all of that should be on the table right now uh, as the FBI and Congress, their overseers, figure out how to go forward. So no one is necessarily born a terrorist. Like when people are babies, they are not terrorists, but they are radicalized to become terrorists. And my question is, what similarities in the radicalization of Islamic extremists, for example, San Bernardino, the Boston bombings, what similarities to that Islamic extremism and that radicalization process are prevalent or observed in the radicalization of some of these far-right extremists who would be so prone to go into the Capitol and scream, hang Mike Pence and kill Nancy Pelosi? What are the similarities there? You know, I think it's important to um, think about this from, the, from two separate perspectives. So first, we know from our work really, really focusing on and trying to uncover that path to radicalization on the Islamic extremist side, that individuals, any given individual will have a host of different experiences and influences that lead to their radicalization. So as you look at individual extremists, it's very hard to tease out like, oh, these are the three things they all have or the five things they all have, because it's very... Uh, very individualized. It's sometimes easier to look from the other direction. So if you look at the organizations, uh, at the groups, the clubs, the societies, what have you, that are trying to recruit individuals to join their extremist movement, I see many parallels between what we experienced from in the international terrorism side through predominantly Islamic extremism to what you're seeing now in the, among uh, right-leaning uh, white power groups here in the United States. This idea that we are all following a uh, charismatic leader who is speaking directly to us, this deeply embedded concepts uh, that lead to emotionally charged grievance, like we are being threatened, our country is being threatened, our way of life is about to be undermined by these agents of change, by these foreign influences, by people who don't look like us or talk like us or worship like us. Um, and so therefore, we're in extremist times, uh, uh, you know, kind of in extremist measures, we need to take up arms and become violent to restore the quote unquote rightful order, um, whether you think that's, um, you know, uh, Islamic law or you think that's let's roll this country back to a time before immigration to, you know, social norms that favored uh, white people over black people, wh whatever that might be. I think those themes of charismatic leadership, um, it kind of stoking the fires of grievance and outrage, and then leading to that conclusion that people need to take up arms and fight, fight back, recover what you've lost, restore your country. And then I think the final thing I would point to is extremists on both sides, they truly believe that they are on the cause of the righteous, the exalted ones, the people who are um, you know, doing the right thing for the world and for their country or their religion or whatever. When in fact, the, the polar opposite is true, right? The, the rioters on January 6th, 
uh, waving flags and claiming, you know, this legacy of patriotism or, you know, it's not patriotic to assault the Capitol. I don't care why, you know, what, what has, you know, led you to become frustrated with politics. Lots of people are frustrated with politics. We don't want to attack the Capitol. Um, the January 6th folks who, you know, wear the, the, the thin blue line shirts and supposedly support the police out there beating them with flagpoles and spraying them with bear spray. And that's not supporting law enforcement, you know? So, um, I think there is this kind of cognitive dissonance between their uh, their own assessment of themselves as being exalted and righteous and then the way they actually behave. So Andrew, the conventional thinking says that young males are ones who are more prone to being radicalized. And I, certainly that could be the, uh, the case when it comes to Islamic radicalization, but also with these militia groups and the Proud Boys, the Boogaloos. But uh, we were fortunate enough to have Will Carlos, USA Today investigative reporter on, and he noted that on January 6th, it was interesting to see diversity of individuals who took part and actually stormed the Capitol. So I'm curious from your perspective as someone who spent their career in the FBI, um, it, are there with the kind of movement with technology changing and social media, are we seeing more and more diversity in radicalizations or is that maybe just a, a one off event. No, I, I definitely think we are. I think you're seeing sort of the democratization of extremism, right? And, and it's primarily, as you said, a, a result of better communication through social media. Um, you know, in the 1970s, if you were a white supremacist uh, and you wanted to learn about the movement of what people are doing, where they're gathering, things like that, you had to tap into, you know, to join the Klan or some other group and tap into these surreptitious, um, you know, mailings and and paper magazines and stuff like that. Nowadays, you don't even have to, all you have to do is search one thing on YouTube. And the next thing you know, that the diet of extremism is being served to you, um, things that you weren't even looking for, you're, you're getting to see. So that has brought uh, extremist ideas and practices and recruiting to the masses in a way that we didn't see um, in the past. So those kind of gender norms that may have restricted that sort of activity to men, either on the Islamic extremist side or the you know the U.S. domestic uh, extremist side, um, those things just don't apply in the same way that they used to. Um, and you know we saw that in in international terrorism. There's certainly tons of examples of women who have become suicide bombers and have become soldiers for the cause. There's probably many, many more examples of women who were um, supporters of the Islamic State and kind of uh, stayed in that more gender normalized role of, you know, supporting this fighter and making the meals and taking care of the family, and all that sort of thing. But um, yeah, there were some that, that uh, took up arms and strapped on explosives and and really went into the fight in a very aggressive and forceful way. And I think it's kind of natural that you'd see that on the DT side as well. Yeah, certainly. I mean, when, when you refer to women uh, sort of participating in these terrorist activities, I sometimes think of the Tamil Tigers uh, in Sri Lanka, because a lot of the suicide bombers were actually women. Uh, but on another note, when we're addressing these threats of domestic terrorism versus international terrorism, the mechanisms and some of the agencies that will address these two different threats are sometimes different. For example, the CIA and the NSA has more of a prerogative in terms of surveillance and their observation with someone in Afghanistan, for example, whereas in dealing with our domestic threats, many of these folks might be American citizens who we are legally restricted in terms of surveillance and other activities. And then 
does does that mean that it is inherently harder to gather information on domestic terrorist targets over international terrorism or are there other ways to go about this? Well, it is definitely harder, and I think harder for good reasons. Um, it's harder to conduct electronic surveillance of um, Americans and what we refer to in the business as U.S. persons. So that's anybody here in the United States and then Americans anywhere else because they're all protected by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. And you know, foreign terrorists, foreign agents of foreign governments uh, in other places are not protected by those same, um, don't, don't have the, uh, the same protections, Fourth Amendment protections that our, our citizens and our folks have. So that's, um, I think, a good reason to require a, a higher level of uh, certainty that we're doing the right thing and, and following the law with surveillance here in the United States and surveillance of Americans. Um, for some of the same reasons, you know, the NSA and the CIA don't surveil and investigate and collect intelligence on Americans. That's beyond the scope of what they do. And I don't think we're quite at the point where we want to unleash um, foreign intelligence, uh, you know, uh, intelligence agencies whose mission is to collect on foreign threats to set, kind of set them loose here in the United States. Um, you know, the FBI is the U.S. We used to say we are the U.S. person people. Um, that's the organization that has the authority to to investigate and surveil Americans. You do it under you know a whole network of federal laws on the criminal side. It's through uh, uh, court authorization under Title Three, and of course on the on the national security side, it's under um, the FISA um, Foreign Intelligence and Surveillance Act. So different um, tools there, but. Even just for the FBI, it puts us in a tough spot. There are many, many more tools, uh, classified tools that you can use through FISA that, of course, you can't use against Americans because you can't take the chance of exposing some of those techniques and capabilities in domestic uh, trials. So domestic terrorism is pursued and is investigated and ultimately prosecuted as entirely a criminal matter here in the United States. Um, and that makes our, you know, significantly um, impacts the techniques and approaches and things that our DT investigators in the FBI can do compared to their IT counterparts. The IT folks can go to the CIA, work cases cooperatively, can interact with foreign intelligence agencies and exchange intelligence. And DT folks, because we're talking about, by definition, Americans, either American citizens or anyone here in America. Um, so you, they have to be much more careful. There's been a real debate um, about whether or not we need a domestic terrorism statute. We currently don't have any, there are no penalties in federal law for being a domestic terrorist. There is a definition of domestic terrorism, but it does not have uh, corresponding uh, criminal penalties. And a lot of folks believe that it should, and that would bolster the FBI's ability to conduct more effective investigations. Other people think, no, it's good the way we have it. So there's a pretty um, vital and legitimate, uh, you know, back and forth conversation between legal scholars on both sides on that right now. Right. I mean, statutory mechanisms certainly help the FBI in their work. But when we look at organizational structure and resources, I'm sure many uh, found the, in the wake of January 6th were asking, you know, why did this happen? How do we prevent this to ensure this never happens again? And so in FBI, uh, as it stands today, is, are there adequate organizational and structural components and resources in order to effectively combat domestic terrorism? Well, I think 
you know, I can only go by my knowledge of where we were um, in very early 2018 when I left the FBI. Um, but I would, but based on that knowledge, I would say I think the the structural systems that are in place are adequate. The question is whether or not we're resourcing those systems and those capabilities uh, effectively. Have we gone back and rebalanced that IT versus DT? You know, workforce. Um, uh, it certainly seems like the threat that we're facing from domestic terrorism and extremism is very, very different than the one we faced ten years ago. Um, it's much more um, um, multifaceted and and broadly spread. And the politics that we're all kind of suffering through right now is, I think, uh, adding fuel to that fire. So, um, yeah, if I were still in the FBI, I would be looking to really shift significant resources over to the DT side. I assume they have done that, but again, um, you know, we don't know that until someone goes in with some neutrality and objectivity and makes a good assessment of where's the FBI right now, uh, in this mission set. I, I think that the FBI's comments about January 6th, I mean, again, just my impression, have been uh, very defensive and not particularly revealing about what they thought before the event, how they see it now, what they're thinking about doing differently, and why changes might be necessary. Um, and and those are that's all things that I think the American people should really want to know. So when we talk about emerging threats to the United States, we often talk about cyber, and we often frame cyber as being in the realm of state actors, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, SolarWinds hacking, those pipeline hacks, and so on. And then, of course, the election, the potential election machine hackings. But is there a threat that cyber is utilized by non-state actors like domestic terrorists? We often think of domestic terrorists as, you know, being these rioters who storm the capitals, uh, perhaps like mass shootings and so on. But is there a threat, for example, to critical infrastructure from these domestic terrorists? Absolutely. Absolutely there is. I think I think we know that they are using cyber tools to some degree, at least to communicate, to recruit, um, to organize operations and, and efforts, rallies, whatever that might be. So they are in the cyber game. Um, I think it's also important to remember that cyber is the tool for everyone, right? You... You know, t- nation states used to typically only act against each other in ways that only nation states can. They have armies, they have maybe nuclear capabilities, they have trained intelligence officers. These are all things that are expensive and <laughs> require a lot of money and organization and everything else. Um, cyber leveled the playing field for everyone. The techno- technology is cheap. It's incredibly effective. Anyone can use it with a, a minimal amount of, of technical sophistication. So that's why we're seeing... Nation states use it. It's easier, cheaper, and carries less risk than actually training an intelligence officer to go to a foreign nation and steal secrets. It's easier to groom a, a room full of hackers who can probe systems and steal them remotely. Um, we're seeing criminal groups use it because they can use the same tools, the same vulnerabilities, the same exploits to you know to implant ransomware to collect information and also uh, enormous sums of money uh, just for profit. Um, so there's absolutely no reason why an extremist group here in the United States wouldn't also maybe use some of those same tools, maybe start, you know, let's say there was a particular state government 
that had enacted a law that you know a local white supremacist group was opposed to what's to stop them from executing a ransomware attack on that state government and seizing up all of their information and you know shutting down systems uh you know, it, to collect ransom, but or maybe also just to put themselves and their message and their capability out there to kind of flex their muscles. So, um, yeah, I think cyber is the threat that really anyone can reach to, and um, everyone gets there eventually. So, Andrew, as we begin to round out uh, today's conversation, I want to ask you about trust in, in the FBI as an institution, because I think over the past handful of years, maybe both sides of the aisle have had. Um, wavering uh, trust levels with the FBI, the DOJ, and you know the government writ large. And so, what would you say to to the um, American person about um, you know saying you know that the FBI is an institution for the American people? Because you know Andre and I certainly have countless conversations with individuals like yourself, and we know that you guys are consummate professionals. Um, but maybe many Americans are not so um, you know um, involved in these conversations or have talked with individuals such as yourself and are, are aware that. You know they are really working for Americans. Yeah, I mean that's a such an important um, question, and it's one that uh, obviously impacts me deeply. I think about this all the time. Um, you know, I would say first um, for people who don't know what to think about the FBI right now, maybe haven't had the sort of personal exposure to it that you have, or certainly I have. Um, to put the political conversation aside for just a minute and listen to the professionals and look at the work that we've done, not just in the last year or four years, but over the last hundred years, right? This FBI has been around 108 years and make decisions for yourself without politics involved because the FBI is actually a place that is not very, it's not politically um, motivated and it's not politically influenced. Um, so those people who scream that it is, discount them for just a minute and do your own research. And secondly, I would say, why? if people say, why should we trust the FBI? Look, it is 37,000 or more people who work in over 400 locations in the United States and many locations overseas. Um, and they are all human beings and human beings are capable of incredible accomplishments. And the FBI you know, does amazing work 10,000 times a day, right? All over the world. But we also make mistakes. We don't always get it right. Sometimes our judgment is off. Sometimes people stray and make mistakes. And sometimes people do things intentionally wrong. And we, we hold them accountable when that happens. Um, but the way that you can know that you can still trust us is these moments of reckoning after a mistake or a loss or a miss or a failure. That's when the FBI has got to be revealing and um, transparent and make it clear, here's what we did, here's what we thought about it, here's maybe how we should have done it different, and here's how we're going to improve going forward. You look at the Fort Hood report, you look at the work that we did after the Boston bombing to try to perfect our information sharing with task force partners, of course, the 9-11 report, go all the way back to the church commission, right? See how... Um, the FBI changed uh, um, under Director Kelly and the directors who came after him to try to get away from the abuses of the Hoover years. That sort of stuff does not happen in the FBI anymore. So I would say that the FBI, yeah, we make mistakes, but we have a pretty good track record of uh, fixing those mistakes and changing as an organization going forward. Um, and ultimately, you know, that's all you can ask of people. Do your best. And FBI people are definitely trying to do their best every day. And when you miss that mark, 
Um, let's have an honest conversation about it. Let's hold people accountable when that's when that's necessary and change the way we do business and get better. On the other side of that coin, so many of the issues we talked about today, counterintelligence, investigations into politically powerful and influential individuals, and domestic terrorism, uh, those have all become very political in terms of how we view those. One side may not want to necessarily do those investigations or that hard work. Another side might want to. Uh, and I think your career is an example of this in both a fortunate and unfortunate way. I mean, towards the end of it, your name got dragged through the mud and the gutter and we were treated very unfairly, especially with that firing, very unfairly. And for those of us who aspire to work in national security and homeland security, whether or not it's for these agencies or adjacent organizations or in government, how do we navigate these inherently nonpartisan, real national and homeland security challenges amidst partisan political pressure? So I teach a course at George Mason University in national security law and politics. And one of the reasons I do it is because I'll take any opportunity to stand up in front of bright, dedicated young people who are interested in working national security issues. Because I think it's so vitally important that we continue to encourage our best people to do that work. It's so important for all of us. Um, and I get asked that many times, like, how could, you know, you you had such a <laughs> rough experience at the end of your career. Um, and so I, I always say, look, I I will acknowledge that in some ways I may be the worst recruiting uh, person, you know, recruiting poster on the planet. Like I love this job and this organization and I did it, you know, as well as I could for many years and then was really kind of treated horribly at the end. But um, I would flip that around and say, despite all of that, uh, I would still stand in front of you and say, this is such an incredible opportunity for um, anyone to pursue. And it is such a gift and an honor to be able to serve in these positions anywhere in our government, really, but certainly in the intelligence community, um, that I would encourage anyone who's interested to do it. And as far as the concern about partisanship and politics, um, politics will change. It does change. Every every couple minutes, every couple of years, certainly every few decades, the political winds that we're currently kind of buffeted by uh, are ultimately going to blow through. Um, before that happens, while it's happening and af long after it's gone, we will still need to protect this nation in a way that's consistent with our constitutional values, values that all of us, right, left, Republican, Democrat, whatever, uh, really, if you sat down with it, we could all agree on. And so uh, don't ever let political nonsense be an obstacle to your interest, uh, to hearing that calling, to you know, answering that call to serve your community, your state, and your country. Um, it is just the greatest, it's the most righteous job um, on the planet. And honestly, I would do it all again tomorrow if given the opportunity. And so yeah, politics is just a speck, uh, you know, that that blows away and service to your nation is is something that you can be proud of forever. And Andrew, with that great piece of advice, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It was a illuminating and important conversation on a variety of national security uh, topics and issues. Um, and also thank you for your service. I mean, you had a great career in the FBI. Uh, we certainly uh, like to see individuals such as yourself 
serving. And we encourage everyone you know, listening to check out these careers because they really do make for a meaningful experience. And so for all of you listening, please check out Andrew's book. As Andre mentioned at the top, it's, it's fantastic. It's called The Threats. It'll be linked in the episode description. Uh, once again, Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This has been a blast. And I appreciate you, you having these conversations about national security. It's a great thing for folks to hear. Well, there you have it, folks. That was our conversation with Andrew McCabe. Certainly, um, as I said on the top, really one of my favorite episodes. We talked about a, a wide variety of things, and Andrew really just demonstrated uh, one his his you know professionalism, his experiences, and also his dedication to serving the American people. Andre, I mean, truly just a fantastic episode. Do you have any lingering questions after the episode? Anything that struck you awry? Anything that was unusual? Do you have just any questions that you wish you sort of could have asked? You know, I, I really want to go back through his book because there, we, we, while we hit on uh, his experiences during the Russia investigation, I mean, truly, that was such a, a critical time in American history. And, you know, Andre, you know, we were, we're always enmeshed in this kind of stuff, this foreign policy, national security stuff. And so, right. I, I want to go back through, kind of really understand what it was like for him and also the people around him, because, I mean, these career FBI officials, they're not political um, really at all. And they, they just have to serve the president and, you know, they're, they're total the, career professionals. Yeah. Right. And so that, I mean, it's, it's gotta be, it's so incredibly difficult. So I wish, you know, we could have had a bit more of a, a candid conversation, even more so than we did just about what it was like, the inner workings of the administration and how, you know, he and other senior FBI leaders came to make those tough decisions, even amidst political pressure from above. I mean, something I really wish I could have asked would have been, you know, what was daily life like uh, during that first impeachment uh, in the days preceding that impeachment? And like, you know, in the aftermath, after he's left public service, because I mean, Andrew McCabe has become, I guess, quite a controversial figure among some circles, certainly among more Republican circles, right wing circles. And I mean, the guy was fired the day before he was eligible for retirement benefits. I mean, that's insanity. But uh, I mean, his book is great. It really delves into why he joined the FBI, his career in public service. And it also digs a bit into some of those counterterrorism conversations we had. I mean, Andrew McCabe, such a consummate, honorable professional. And I mean, You'll be hearing more from him, I believe, on CNN. He's on CNN right now as an analyst. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, I, you know, I would have loved to actually, you know, talk about more of, you know, the geopolitical conversations that we have, because I mean, he has, right, a, a, just a career in national security where we could have talked about all the threats, you know, even more on cyber or maybe nation state threats, non-state threats. And so, yeah. we, I, you know, we got to have him back on the podcast, talk about some, a few more things, but the conversation we had today was definitely an important one. And I'm glad we had it. Exactly. And Ryan, I mean, we asked everyone about geopolitics and cyber and all of these big flashpoint issues for the most part. So we got to, you know, make it more precise, I guess, some of these interviews. Otherwise, we'll just be asking everyone the same questions. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Though, as as a foreign policy nerd, I do like having those conversations. But again, the one we had with Andrew uh, was a fantastic one. And I I really encourage you all to go out, check out his book, check out his uh, other appearances. There's a lot there's a you know, a million of his talks on probably YouTube. And so, um, you know, really a profound thank you to Andrew McCabe, not only for, you know, his great career of, of public service, but also for joining us. I mean, really a, a fun conversation to have. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, when do you start school again? Um, I got a few more weeks. You know, the end of August, the day after my birthday is when I have to go in person finally. You know, they just reinstated this mask mandate. And so I guess I'll be masked 
uh, in law school for uh, the third year. But I mean, you know, this is what's happening. You know, people, they're not getting vaccinated, which means that we have Delta variant and it's getting worse. And, and so um, while I'm excited to be back in school, see, you know, my friends that I haven't seen for quite a long time, um, it's going to be a bummer. I mean, COVID just, we can't shake it. Hey, man. I mean, we had that summer of freedom and now we see the consequences <laughs> of the summer of freedom plus just, you know, being unvaccinated. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'll be doing when I'm in Sri Lanka is just further, you know, doing the job search. I hope I'll have interviews while I'm there. Uh, job interviews, not necessarily podcast interviews, folks. We recorded all of our podcast interviews for the month of August. But I'm going to try to seek some folks out while I'm in Sri Lanka to try and get some in-person interviews with some interesting folks, which will be an interesting look at a microcosm of what China is doing throughout South Asia and Southeast Asia with the BRI and other political uh, influence. But yeah, if I have job interviews, man, it's going to be at like 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. Sri Lankan time, just because Sri Lanka is virtually 12 hours ahead of the United States, or at least where I am in the United States right now and on the Pacific Standard Time Zone and on the West Coast. So that's going to be a bummer, but... God willing, I can make it out to D.C. at some point. Hey, I'm looking forward to having you join me out in D.C. But I will say, Andre, once you're in D.C. and once COVID clears up, I'm I'm so excited to have in-person interviews. Like, so for all of you listening, we've been doing this virtually since day one, and you know, I've I've seen Andre, right? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, <laughs> Andre, I haven't seen you in over a year in person, and so. I haven't seen you. Yeah. And uh, it would have it would have been two years the last time I actually saw you in person. You took me to a hospital. Because, wow. Folks, I thought I was having I, w- I went to a bar and then I didn't even have anything to drink. I thought I was having a stroke because my left side just went numb. But apparently it was what they call an ocular migraine. I get out of the bar. I see Ryan walking and it's like, hey, and I'm like, I need to go to the hospital please, I need to go to the hospital. We go to the hospital as Ryan's one day in Ann Arbor and we spend five hours <laughs> of them telling me nothing's wrong with me. And then guess what? They charged me $1,800 for them making me walk in a straight line and watching my eyes. Well, Ooh. maybe maybe a few things are wrong with you, but we'll just leave it there. Um, you know, Andre, that was one of the most craziest but also funniest experiences that we've ever had together and i wouldn't have spent my time in ann arbor any other way but i i can't believe you just shared that with our listeners so all of you you have far more insight into (laughs) far more insight into our um our you know personal experiences than probably anyone most people have and so you know andre thank you for sharing that it was that's i can't believe this what a good memory (laughs) but i was just literally so tired yeah i was just so tired and i just had this big headache and an ocular headache is a scary thing. It can mimic these symptoms of a stroke. So if you feel numbness, go to a hospital immediately. But no, it may not always be a stroke. Well, But you should always verify that. Exactly. Thank you to the University of Michigan Health System for telling Andre that there's nothing wrong with him. Um, Thank you for charging. 1800 bucks. Well, you know, there's far more stories that we could delve into probably in later podcasts about other you know, situations, but we'll leave it there. Yeah. Everyone, uh, thank you for listening so much. Um, I hope you're enjoying the kind of new kind of back and forth that we have at the beginning and end of our uh, weekly episodes, our Monday episodes. And as always, you're going to hear from us next Monday. You'll hear from us every Friday. Uh, thank you for listening. Make sure to check us out on social media at Burnbag Pod. And Andre, enjoy that flight. Thank you. It's going to be 16 hours of sitting in one spot, masked on. 
I think I'm looking forward to the airline food because apparently they do a good job with that on Qatar Airlines. But we will see. I will review the food next Monday when we have a very serious conversation with Ron Marks. Yes, Ron Marks. Well, we'll see you then. Enjoy, everyone. Have a good week.